But Isaiah 27 um, is an awesome chapter in which we begin with some details regarding the tribulation period. But really, it should kind of go with the previous chapter. Because you guys know the chapters and verses were something that were inserted later by man. Um, and we were in you know that section talking about how you know, Israel was uh, uh, protected by the Lord at the, the rock city of Petra while the devil was after them. And so we read in chapter 27, it's in that day, so we're still there. The Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And so he's not, you know, speaking of a literal figure, a literal Loch Ness monster in the sea. He's actually referring to the devil himself. And so I wanted you to turn, if you would, to Revelation 12, and you kind of get at least a little portion of what's going on. Remember, during the tribulation period, um, and really in the history of Israel, we see the enemy has opposed this nation, which is a sign to the world. And he would love to destroy Israel, but of course, uh, we know that, that that he can't. And so we read in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 1, it says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. Now this sign is, it takes us back to Genesis chapter 37, uh, verses 9 through 10, when Joseph had his dream, and it's in reference to Israel. And so this is in reference to, to Israel. And, and so it says in verse 2 that then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon. There he is. Having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. And so you kind of get um, just like the background of, of certain things, not necessarily in chronological order, but the devil, when he fell, he drew a third of the angelic hosts with him. And so we see that here. And we see also here that the devil would, would try to devour, would try to destroy uh, Jesus. And so he, he tries to destroy Israel. And so it says in verse 5, she, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations. That's who? That, that's Jesus, right? With a rod of iron. That's the millennial kingdom. In heaven, he's not going to have to rule necessarily with a rod of iron because no one's going to get out of line. But in the millennial kingdom, he will. And it says, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And so we know that's when Jesus ascended into heaven. And so it says in verse 6, then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And so halfway through the tribulation period, we saw this last time, uh, Israel will flee, God will protect them. And so, you know, we get that uh, here um, in Isaiah 26, the latter portion, and then we see it here in Revelation. And so, in verse 7, it says, And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so somewhere in you know, the, the, the course of time, uh, the devil no longer has access 
to heaven like he does in the book of Job. In the book of Job, you might remember, he's kind of reporting to God. And, uh, the, you, know, you know, we see that there. And so even though he's cast out of heaven, he doesn't have a place of position in heaven. He does have a report that he has to give to God. And, but that now this time comes where he no longer is even able to do that. And so it says in verse 9 that the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before God day and night has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. And so um, verse 9 identifies this dragon as the serpent of old. Now, when you see, when you study the tribulation period, we know that the enemy um, empowers the Antichrist. He empowers the false prophet. And, you know, the devil himself is the force behind that. But halfway through, he goes into the temple. He proclaims that he's God. It's at that point that the Jews will flee to Petra. And then all hell breaks out on earth. We call that Jacob's trouble. But then after the tribulation period, when Jesus comes, Revelation chapter 19, you know, the battle of Armageddon, the Lord takes the devil, puts him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years. And after a thousand years, he's released one more time. And that's when the Father comes, fire comes down from heaven. And you read Revelation chapter 20, and he, that serpent, that devil that we're reading about, this Leviathan, this monster, is all evil is cast into the lake of fire forever and ever. And so that's what we're reading back in Isaiah chapter 27. In that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, that, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. And so um, we move then from the tribulation period, the end of it, and then to the restoration of Israel and ultimately the millennial kingdom. And so we read in verse 2 in Isaiah 27, it says, In that day I sing to her a vineyard of red wine, I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or, Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Now, here we see um, this song, a vineyard of red wine, a vineyard of uh, productive fruit. And basically, we see that God is now identifying Israel as a vine, and it's different. Um, If you read Isaiah chapter 5, God indicted Israel as this vine for not bearing fruit. But here, they're protected, and then they're productive for God. And what we find is by His grace, the, the nation of Israel will not only stay alive, but they will one day thrive. And again, like we talked about last week, you guys, the reason why the Lord is sharing these things is because Israel is going to go through some heavy, heavy trials. They have gone through heavy, heavy trials. We've seen it in the Holocaust. 
We saw it in, you know, when they were 1.2 million Jews were slaughtered by the Romans in 70 AD. They have gone through so much. And so when you go through trials, um, it's important for us to know that that's not the end, that death is not the end, that, that we actually live, that there is this good thing that God is working out. And that's why Isaiah is writing to them and he's telling them that eventually there will be that restoration of this vine. You know, Israel, uh, during the tribulation period and really throughout her history, we find they, they must make a choice. And it's just so beautiful to see here that eventually they will choose Jesus. Now, in, in, in John uh, chapter 15, we know that the church is, the, uh, is part of this vine. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. And so we'll, we'll talk about this more later. But um, when you think of that whole concept, I, I love what it says right here. Don't you guys love what it says in verse 3? I, the Lord, keep it. I, I water it every moment, lest any hurt it. I keep it night and day. You know, and that, that's Israel, but that's also us. You guys know that? What would happen to you if the Lord took a moment off? You know, um, last week we were here, my son got in a car accident, you know, and yeah, you're like, well, why, did, why didn't God, you know, prevent the accident? Well, yeah, you can look at it that way, but another way of looking at it is thank God he's okay. You know, nothing's going to touch us unless God allows it. And if God allows it, we know it's a good thing. To me, it's a, just a wonderful promise to know that every single moment of our life that God is protecting us and he is doing this night and day. You know, what we find is during this time, this millennial kingdom, Israel is going to be exalted, you know? I mean, they're going to find the Messiah and all the nations need to make sure that they're, they're, they're good to the Jews. Um, and, and so we find that Israel has to make that choice eventually for Jesus and, and so does everyone else, right? You have to ask yourself tonight, are you for or against God? Are you? There's no middle ground. You know, the Jews have to choose. We all have to choose. Uh, look what it says again in verse uh, 4, he says, Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in, in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. And, and what that is, is in reference to is anyone attacking Israel. You know, you got the vine right there, and then someone, for whatever reason, is attacking this vine with briars and thorns. Uh, God is basically saying, if I find briars and thorns growing, I will attack them. I will burn them up. And then in verse 5 is the flip side. So you, you can go against Israel. You can go against Christ during that whole tribulation period, during you know, even the millennial kingdom. You can go against God's anointed. Or you can humble yourself where it says right there in verse 5, or here's the contrast, let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall have peace with me. Now, now this is a principle overall, but something to think about because during the tribulation period, the devil is going to muster up a rebellion. And did you know that there were going to be some people who are going to fight against um, you know, the Lord? 
And they're actually going to fight him, not only during the tribulation period, but even at the end of the millennial kingdom. They're going to fight against Israel. They're going to fight against Christ. And so in one sense, what he's saying right here is, if you fight against Israel, you fight against Christ, you're going to be burned. That's what he's saying. You're going to be burned up. But wouldn't it be better for you to just choose to let me be your strength? To let me be your peace? And that's what he says right there. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and, and he shall make peace with me. See, at the end of the day, like it says there in verse 4, who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? And so I guess we can go to Matthew 12, verse 30, or, you know, that verse that says, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. You know, I don't know about you, but... I mean, I know for me, I choose to let the Lord be my strength. Where would I be if the Lord wasn't my strength? Where would I be if I didn't have that relationship with him, if I didn't have the peace that he gives? You know, we have to, as we look at this, I pray, be all in, you guys. No middle ground, no one foot in and one foot out. Jesus said, either you're for me or you're against me. And so the Lord here gives us that principle. And I think we also have to make sure that we don't lose the connection you know, to this great nation of Israel. You know, if we as Gentiles do so, then we'll be grafted into the promised blessings of Israel. Look what he says in verse 6. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. And Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. And so, you know, it's interesting when you look at this, how, um, you know, Romans eleven seventeen it speaks of the fact that the Gentiles have been grafted in to Israel. They've been kind of grafted into the olive tree. And when you go to Israel, you can see those olive trees and the way that the, the farmers, uh, they would actually graft in uh, different plants together. And that's what's happened. You know, Israel is, when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, past, present, and future of Israel, you'll find that the Gentiles have been grafted in. And that's what he says right here, that if you come, then, and he says in verse 6, he shall cause to take root in, in Jacob. And what we find is that we can be grafted in as, as, as Gentiles. And you guys know this, that as we're looking forward, that eventually Israel will, that's going to be, in the nation, in, in the millennial kingdom, and then we as a church can possess uh, those promises. Not that we replace Israel. We don't believe that. If you ever hear people say that Israel has replaced, I mean, the church has replaced Israel, that's not true. Israel's still uh, an entity. God's dealing with them. Um, but we as a church have been grafted in. Israel will be restored. And as they're reading this, they needed to know that because the trials were ahead. They needed to be, be aware of their glory. And I, know it may, I don't know if you guys like catch that. We need to be aware of our glory. The, the sufferings of this world are, are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that we're going to receive one day. You know, that that's encourages us. I always tell you guys, heaven is not just a destination, it's a motivation. Israel, God is dealing with this nation and they're going to get you know, uh, spanked. Any of you parents here, did you ever discipline your kids? Why did you discipline them? Did you discipline them because you just wanted to punish them? Did you discipline them because it was punitive? 
No, it was always corrective. And the same is true with with Israel. God's going to deal with them. It it required severe um, sentences at times, but he was accomplishing something. Look, it says in verse 7, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? And has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? For example, Assyria would hit Israel. And so God is going to hit Assyria, but God's also going to hit Israel. But he does it different. Like, for example, you know, the Philistines or whoever it might be, they're gone. But that's not how God struck Israel. God dealt with Israel, but he's not done with Israel. He didn't destroy Israel. And that's all he's saying right here is, and again, Israel, they're going to be dealt with. He has struck them. We do go through trials. We do experience correction. And, you know, the things that we go through in life, I don't know if it's always chastening, but I'll bet you some of it is. God is dealing with us. And God is dealing with them, but he doesn't, we're not forsaken. We're not. You know, we're different. Why? Because we're God's kids. Has he struck Israel? Has he struck those who struck him? The answer, of course, is no. And, and, and has, the second part, has he been slain? Now, in your Bibles, just curious, the word he, has he been slain? How many of you here have a capital H on that word? Okay, so some of you do. He's talking about God, really. And he says, has he, God, been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? And this kind of takes us back to what we saw earlier in Isaiah. Uh, uh, he's talking about how when at the end of the age, man, when you know Israel is exalted and all these other nations are, are, are put down in their place, all their gods die. All their gods disappear because all their gods are not even gods at all. The one God who's not slain, the one God who's exalted is the only God, the living God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's saying when, when it's all said and done. You know how we have the God of the Bible. You know, when we look at this, you're like, well, God has uh, disciplined Israel, but he hasn't destroyed Israel, but he has dealt with them, hasn't he? Look what we read in in verse 8. It says, In in measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He he removes it by his rough wind in in the day of the east wind. And you know what verse 8 is talking about? It's talking about how Israel was uh, taken out of the land. When Babylon came from the east, then Israel did have these vicious east winds, but this is probably representative of Babylon coming and in 586 BC carrying the Jews away into captivity. And so he dealt with them. And so it says in verse 9, Therefore by this the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin, when he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. And basically what he's saying is that as he dealt with Israel with the east wind, with Babylon coming and carrying them away captive and just uh, um, you know the, the, the sentence of that, that what it, do, it did is it purged them 
of their idolatry. And unfortunately, that's what it takes sometimes, you know, that, that God uh, unfortunately has to deal with individuals that in that way. I always tell you guys, you know, the, the way that we should be holy is just by the word of God. You know, if, that, if only we would just listen to the Bible. You know, if that doesn't work, then God's going to have to go beyond the verbal to then the circumstantial. And things begin to happen. And, you know, still sometimes people don't listen. And again, it's not always in this order, but then there's the physical. God can deal with this in that way. And sometimes even the fatal. So what you want is you want to listen because Israel would not listen to the prophets that God was sending to them to get their lives right. And so they, the only hope for them to get right and to come back to you know, getting rid of all the other idols of life, because really, I think in one sense, so much of our life just comes down to this, that we put people, places, or things, ambitions, possessions, relations before God. It's just idolatry. And what God wanted to do, God had to do with Israel, is to purge them from that. And so all those altars were they're pulverized. And now... Not that we don't love others or not that we don't have fun in doing other things, but there is no rival thrones in our hearts. You know, earlier when we read, Isaiah had written about the city that would be judged. We saw that in Isaiah 26, verse 5. And um, we see it again here. Now, remember, in one sense, the Bible is a tale of two cities, Babylon and Jerusalem. And Babylon is symbolic to just this world system, the commercial system, the religious system, and Las Vegas, Los Angeles, you know, New York. I mean, it's the, it's the epitome of the world. And so we've seen it in Isaiah how he's going to deal with these you know, nations, the, even these cities. And we see it again here in verse 10. It says, Yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The woman come and set them on fire. For it is a people of no understanding. And therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them. And he who formed them will show them no favor. Now, this is heavy stuff. You know, when you think about the city, and not just the city, but the citizens the people. And this is Jesus just kind of like weeping over Jerusalem and saying, you know, how, how he wanted them to get saved and they were not willing. And how Jesus uh, even, I think, I hope and I pray, he puts the burden on our, our hearts to reach out to the lost. You know, the other day, I was, I'm so blessed. If you can't keep my sister Michelle in prayer, I don't think she's watching. Um, but man, God's working in her life. God is working in my sister's life. And, you know, this was someone that, um, I, 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 my half-sister, and uh, she was, I don't know, she's a lot younger than me, you know. And so I kind of got to know her a little bit more when my dad passed away a couple of years ago, and we started making a connection. And so she came from a Mormon background, but she didn't really know much about Mormonism. And she's telling me that her mom kind of got interested in it because of the fact that she 
was um, helped by them, you know, with groceries and stuff. And so, but she didn't know much about it. And so, man, I just, we just been talking and it's been so cool to see how she's coming, man. She's all, I, I just, you know, now I thank God that I have someone to talk to and I, and I sent her a Bible yesterday. And so I, I don't know, like the Lord, and when you become a Christian and you realize that there's only heaven and hell, you realize there's this burden and it's just so cool when we read it right here, we're seeing, man, there, it really is a, a, a serious thing that you have two cities. You have Babylon and Jerusalem. You got the citizens of heaven and the citizens of, of unrighteousness. And so we, uh, we, we got we to gotta know these things. God is going to judge those cities. And it's just so sad because notice again what it says right here. For it is a people of no understanding. Like they don't understand you know, that God made them, that God loves them, that God redeemed them. If only someone could go and teach them those things, right? And their hearts would be open. Therefore, he who made them, unfortunately, will now have mercy on them because they unfortunately rejected him. He who formed them will show them no favor. And isn't it crazy today how people are so... You know, the world that we live in, these celebrities, these athletes, they're so arrogant, these politicians, so many people that are just so defiant against God. They're so determined to do things that are anti-Bible, anti what their creator God tells them to do, you know? And uh, the people, they have no interest in obeying or even acknowledging the very God who made them. You know, but I know this because I know when I w- went to college, I majored in philosophy, and I would always think those you know tough questions. Uh, to me, they're basic questions like, "Who made me? Where did I come from? What's the purpose of life? What, what, where am I going?" I mean, those are questions that are intrinsic within us. They don't, but them, what do they believe that they're the product of, of evolution, random chance, and so you know. Man, that's kind of where it ends up. They have no interest in obeying or even acknowledging the God who made them. And so therefore, it says right there, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. And the word favor, we guys know it, right? In the Greek, it's grace. Because grace is defined as unmerited favor. And so they, they don't get that. When I was reading this right here, it kind of reminded me of John chapter 1 and verse 10 through 12. It's talking about Jesus, and it says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. And it's so sad how the world, created by him, has no interest in him. And so we read in verse 12, and it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one. I like that, one by one, O you children of Israel. And so it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown, and they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. And so, 
Uh, verse 12 is, is probably in reference to um, something that you guys are going to see when you read the prophets. This is an amazing thing how God can be talking about what's going on you know, in one time, and then it, it also is in reference to the end time. And so God would judge Babylon. You guys know that, right? The um, Persians would come. God would judge Babylon. And then in the process, the Jews would be able to go back to their land, right? So the end of the world, same thing. God's going to judge the world, and the Jews are going to be regathered like crazy. And I love what it says right here. It says that there's that trumpet, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, Syria, they'll come back to this place. I love the way that it mentions there in verse 12 that you'll be gathered one by one. And, and so, I mean, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. All you have to do is have a little openness, and you, you'll see throughout the ages how Israel has always been scattered but then regathered. You know, scattered away to Assyria, scattered away to, to Babylon. You know, and, and then when you see in the, in the turn of the century, the Zionist movement, and as they began to get back into the land, and they began to purchase the land from the Arabs, and they began to re-inhabit the nation of Israel. And in 1948, becoming a nation again, and then boom, now you've got six million Jews living in the land again. And then, you know, you see it over and over again. It's happening again. And then at the end of the tribulation period, I love what it says right here, one by one, God will regather his people to Jerusalem. And that's how the Lord does it, huh? Whatever you do, don't ever underestimate the value of a single soul. Maybe you're thinking, well, Lord, I want, you know, 100 people to get saved or 1,000 people to get saved. And of course we do. But man, maybe that one person that God wants you to reach out to is the next Billy Graham that's going to reach 100,000 people or a million people or whatever it might be. So I, I, one thing I've learned in life, and I, and I know if you guys have God's heart, you have the same interest, how every single person is precious. How every single person has an infinite value. And even how God has gathered us one by one. You know, you guys have probably heard that story. We've said it a million times about that man who was on the beach shore and all these starfishes had washed up and they were, they were basically left to dry and die. And so what did the man do? You guys remember? He would go and he would pick up one and he would throw it into the ocean. But there was thousands of them there and there's no way he could possibly get to all of them and so as he's doing it, uh, someone, a little boy comes up to him, hey, mister, what are you doing? He says, well, I'm trying to save the starfish. And so the little boy says, well, that's not making much of a difference. Look, at, there's the thousands of them here. To which the man then reaches down, he picks up one starfish, and he throws it into the ocean. And he said, it made a difference to that one. That's how it is, one by one. God was gathering, God's gathering the Jews back into the land one by one. God, you guys, man, remember when you got saved? Somebody prayed for you. Somebody reached out to you. Somebody did something to be a vessel or an instrument or a tool or a weapon in order for you to get saved. Now let us be those vessels or tools to reach out to people. You know, I was just, just devastated to hear about this pastor's wife, and maybe some of you guys heard it. She, she couldn't handle what was going on. I don't really know all the details about it, but she ended up you know, taking the life of three of her children. She attempted to take her own life, and I don't know what the whole story was, but I know that we live with people like that. 
that there are people all around us who are hurting, who want to die, who, you know, they're, they're struggling, and, you know, we're, you know, whatever. Sometimes we're too busy. We really need discernment. Lord, who can I reach out to? And that phone call or that visit, that prayer for that one might make the difference. And so Isaiah 28, it goes into the woes and warnings to Ephraim and Jerusalem. And you actually see now a transition in, in, the, in the, uh, the book to, to woes and warnings all the way through chapter 33. And, and look what he says here in verse 1. He says, Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valleys, to those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing. Who will bring them down to the earth with his hand? The, the crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim, will be trampled underfoot, and the glorious beauty is a fading flower which is at the head of the verdant valley. Like, like the first fruit before the summer which an observer sees and he eats it up while it is still in his hand. So remember, Isaiah is prophesying around 700 BC. Um, and, and what we find is that eventually the Assyrians are going to come and they are going to conquer and they are going to maim and they're going to gouge out eyes and cut off arms and they're going to just, they're going to put up in the front of the city, there's going to be a, a mound of skulls. All the leaders, their heads are going to be there. The Assyrians were brutal. And, and they were on their way, you know, to judge Israel. Now, Israel at this time, as Isaiah is prophesying, they're, they're thriving, they're prosperous. They're like the United States of America. And you might think there's no way, you know, that this can happen to them. We're God's people. But, but what had happened was, and he, he kind of gives some specifics here, they, they were not a sober people. They were not a spiritual people. Um, they were drunk, you know, he, 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 he says, woe you know, to you guys. Woe to the crown of pride, to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower. You know, judgment would come to Ephraim. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. And they would be trampled underfoot. You know, it would be, and he mentions, you know, like the first fruit before the summer, which as an overseer, uh, observer sees, it would be like a, a, a ripened fig. And, and in those days, and Jesus kind of talked about this too, you would have the early fig. And, uh, you know, not necessarily what we would consider full on ripe, but for some it was a delicacy. God says uh, it's almost like he was going to get him early. A northern kingdom would have no safety and she would be taken into exile. And I, and I, and I would have to say this, you guys. God's not just saying this is a fatalistic statement. You're not just saying it like, hey, I'm you know, going to tell you what you're going to get judged and there's nothing you can do about it. Because remember when Jonah went to Nineveh? Jonah went, he wasn't a great preacher. He was just you know, there because he had to be there. And he said, hey, you know, Nineveh is going to be overthrown you know, in, in just a few days. And, and that's all he did. And then the whole nation, when they heard that prophecy, they repented, even the king, all the way down to the the bottom, and God averted, God changed his mind. So when Isaiah's writing this, he's just saying, hey, you guys are going to get you know, judged. He's probably writing at the same time, asking for them to change. Change. 
Repent. You know, and I think that when you look at the church today, and you look at the United States of America today, not that we're being the doom and gloom, you know, pastors or prophets, but we've talked about this before, how there's so much bloodshed. And when you start from, from, the, from the, you know, the birth, when, you know, the, the child's in the mom's womb and 125,000 babies every single day. I mean, what's God, you know, thinking? And then, you know, murders are up now, violent crimes. And so, you know, the judgment is on its way. Romans 1, it says, when you start seeing the aggressive homosexuals doing their thing, that's actually a form of judgment in which God has taken his hand off of us. And so, you know, what, what, what should we do? We should repent. I should repent. If there's any sin in my life, sins of omission, sins of commission, you know, if there's maybe you're here today and you just have not been on fire for God, you know, not to be hard on you guys, but hey, this is like the call. You know, we're, you know, losing the game, so to speak, and it's the last quarter, and not that we lose as individuals, because we know that the overall war is already won through Jesus Christ, but there are people to win. There are battles along the way, and sometimes it takes a little bit more uh, passion, more effort, more obedience. I don't know, not to sound like a legalistic relationship, but maybe God's calling us to pray more. I don't know. He'll show you the details. But what we find he's saying to them, judgment is on its way. In that day, he says in verse 5, the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. And so one of the things that you'll see is there's always a remnant, huh? always a remnant, whether it be Israel and the day of their judgment or even us today as a church. You know, there, there is this beautiful crown of glory, diadem of beauty that God is to us. But when we see the judgment, did you notice the exchange of words there in verse 6? When you see the judgment, it's really the justice. That's what it is. And so Israel, unfortunately, had been led astray by their leaders. Look what it says in verse 7. But they have also erred through wine and through intoxicating drink. Because of that, they're out of the way. They're not in the right way. The priests and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach and whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. And, and, and verse 9 and 10, most people believe those are the words that these priests and prophets were saying regarding Isaiah's message. Oh, this is a simple message. A child, a childish message. And even when you look at it in the Hebrew rhythm, they're one-word syllables. And so they were not listening to Isaiah. They were not listening to his exhortation. They were not listening to his words of warning. They were just getting drunk. They were getting drunk. They were not sober. And, and when I was reading this, I, I mean, it is a literal thing. It is a literal thing. And so, 
Now, some people think it's okay to drink and get drunk and, and all that kind of stuff. You know, and as far as when you get drunk, when, when do you get drunk? What, what's the definition of getting drunk? Because when you drink alcohol, is it when your reflexes slow down? Is it when your judgment is impaired? I mean, you know, give me a break. I think that we know, um, Joe Foe did a really good study on the fact that um, the, the wine was a lot weaker then. Um, they didn't have as many options to drink, I, I will say that. And again, the Bible may not prohibit it full on, but man, it gives you a lot of different things to think about. You know, when I was reading this, I was reminded in Leviticus chapter 10, and Nadab and Abihu, and they were the priests, and they had drunk. They had gotten a little tipsy, and so what they did was they went into the tabernacle and they offered profane fire. In other words, they did not do it exactly, precisely according to God's word, and so God killed them. You read that in Leviticus 10. And it was because they had drunk, and so the Lord said, hey, I want these guys to know anyone's doing any tabernacle work, make sure you don't drink. Why? Because that impairs your judgment. We don't need it. I mean, if you're here and you're like, well, I like to drink, I guess it's between you and the Lord, but man, what if your son sees you? What if your daughter sees you? What if your neighbor sees you? And they figure, well, you can drink so I can drink, and then they can't handle it. Then they get drunk. The blood's on your hands. Why do people need to drink? I don't understand. Is it because they're not comfortable in their own skin? They need it to loosen up? What? Just be yourself. You know, what, what I found when I read the Bible is there's many more warnings, and I wouldn't want to come near it with a 10-foot pole. You can go and you can find a church, and, and some people do that. I want to go find a church where they let me drink. And they're out there. You know, and again, we're not going to necessarily micromanage you, but if you serve in ministry, we ask that you don't drink because we don't want to make anybody stumble. And we read warnings like this. And, you know, I was even thinking of Proverbs 31. It says in verse 4, It is not for kings, O Lemuel. It is not for kings to drink wine, nor for princes intoxicating drink, lest they drink and forget the law and pervert the justice of all the afflicted. Many of you here, you probably grew up. I know I did with a dad, you know, who drank or alcoholic. And we've seen the, the, the damage it does. So this is what was going on in Israel. You know, these guys were were drinking and they were therefore not awesome and effective and faithful leaders that God wanted them to be. And so they wouldn't listen to Nehemiah. They thought he was, you know, talking childish stuff. And that's what we read there in verse 9 and 10. And and I'll be honest, that's the way we should teach you know line upon line precept upon precept here a little there a little this is the right way to teach david guzik said this is the blessed way to present god's word precept upon precept line upon line isaiah takes the taunt of drunkards and receives it as a compliment god's messengers are to present all of god's word without skipping a line and to present it simply i like that I really like that. You know, um, Pastor Chuck, that's what he said. Simply teach the Bible simply. Now, I'm not smart enough to teach it any other way, but um, 
it, it is cool to be able to just go through the whole, the whole Bible. And at the end of the study, let's just say something wasn't elaborated on enough, then ask us, you know? Because the Bible is so deep, it will never touch the bottom. I like what C.H. Spurgeon said on this. He said, This also implies that we can't receive all aspects of God's message at once. It's an excellent thing that the gospel is taught us by degrees. It is not forced home upon men's mind all at once, but it comes thus, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little, there a little. God does not flash the everlasting daylight on weak eyes in one blaze of glory, but there is at first a dim dawn and the soft incoming of a tender light for tender eyes, and so by degrees we see. And that's how we teach it. So God would end up teaching his people, because they didn't listen, he would end up teaching them the hard way in foreign lands by judging them. That's what we see in verse 11. For with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people to whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. And what this is in reference to is how they would be taken into captivity and they would hear the foreign language. And as they're there, probably looking back at all their mistakes, at all the ways that that they did not listen to the voice of the prophet or the Holy Spirit, and they're listening to all the foreign languages, it was as if God was speaking through them. Well, now do you get it? Now do you understand how you need to repent. I told you what to do. I told you. I I taught you. I reached out to you. This is how you rest in the Lord. This is how you're saved. This is how you're sanctified. But unfortunately, uh, they they would not hear. And so, you know, they made fun of the teaching in, in verse 13. But the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little that they might go and fall backward and be broken, snared, and caught. Therefore, verse 14, hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. And so now he moves from Ephraim to, to Jerusalem. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge does pass through, It will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. And so, you know, it it definitely applies to Isaiah's day. But I I was reading this and I was thinking about Jesus' day. I was really thinking about Jesus' day. And I guess in one sense, they're the same. These religious leaders, they, they were not even really saved. They were only in it for themselves. They were not like shepherds. They didn't really care about the people. They were actually in it for the money. In one sense, you can kind of say that they made a covenant with death in the sense that, you know, kind of like, um, what's his name, Anakim Skywalker, um, how he went to the dark side. It's just like that, 
Well, you go to the dark side. Why did he want to go to the dark side? Because he had his own interests. He had his own, uh, you know, his, he wanted to take care of Padme, or that's her name. I, you know, and, and hey, that's why people don't serve the Lord. We have to know that prayer. Jesus said, thy kingdom come. Not my kingdom. My kingdom go. Thy kingdom come. Unfortunately, they went to the dark side. They made this you know, deal with, with, with the devil. And, and so that's when the Lord just, in verse 16, I, I, verse 16 is obviously in reference to Jesus. And we don't have time to turn there. Uh, I wish we did. But Matthew uh, 21, it's, it's a perfect parallel because he quotes this passage right here, how Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the rock. Jesus is the key. Jesus is, is everything. He's that sure foundation. And then, he, 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 he speaks that in the context of these guys with the vine and the vine dresser and these religious leaders who, who would not listen to Jesus, the Son of God, when he actually came. And so this passage is referenced many times. If you want to write down Luke 20, verse 17, or Acts 4, verse 11, Romans 9, 33, Ephesians 2.20 and 1 Peter 2.6 and 7. And so for us, it's, it's Jesus. And so we read in verse 17, Also I will make justice the, the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. The, the devil's not going to be able to protect them, right? When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. As often as it goes out, it will take you for morning by morning, it will pass over, and by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the report, just to hear of what happened when Israel was judged, when Jerusalem was judged, when people get judged, just to hear it is going to be a terror. Verse 20, for the bed is too short to stretch out on and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. Imagine, you know, you're in a bed and it's too small for you. Or, you, you know, you're freezing cold and they give you a little blanket, but it's just like a towel or something. You know, it can't cover you. And basically, what he's saying is there was no refuge, no rest, no warmth, no salvation in what these drunk leaders advocated. For the Lord, he says in verse 21, will rise up as at Mount Perizam, and he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now, therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong. You don't want to be strong against God, believe you me. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. And so, you know, the Lord, I don't know about for you, but for me, I know for sure he's calling me, you know, to holiness. You know, he's calling me to re- just know um, what's going to happen. And, and, you know, for us, you know, we're looking at Israel, we're looking at Jesus. And, um, and I pray that we would stay focused here um, not to be mockers, where he talks about your, don't let your bonds be made strong. He's talking about being strong in, with people against God. And that's the last thing in the world that 
that you would want. And you know, and you see all these people in Hollywood, and all these that are esteemed and they're so sometimes even envied by Christians. Why would we want to follow them? Why are we interested in what they say or what they post? You know, be careful. You know, for us as Christians, uh, it's all about Jesus. And so the Lord is doing this work and he has a way of planting seeds and watering seeds and bringing forth a harvest. And that's kind of how he closes the, the, the book. God is so awesome, man. He's got this plan. You know that when we go to heaven, not one will be missing. Isn't that cool to know? Look what he says in verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows and the barsley in the appointed place and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment. His God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread, flour must be ground. Therefore, he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. You know, there, there's, a, there's a certain way of agriculture and, and harvesting and, you know, just doing all these different things. There's different tools that are necessary every step of the way. That's basically what he's saying right here. When it comes to that, that type of agriculture, well, 1 Corinthians 3 compares the church to the same thing. He says in verse 29, this also comes from the Lord of hosts who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Remember we read in Isaiah 9, 6, the wonderful counselor, huh? That's who Jesus is. And he's working this whole thing out. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. He was lighting a fire inside of me. And he has his way of just doing things. And at the end of the day, we, we just thank him for who he is. And we're going to see this whole book of Isaiah is this beautiful book of our Savior, you know, Jesus. And so um, we find this as we read through the, the chapters today. And I just pray, you guys, that we would be sensitive to his Holy Spirit and, um, you know, there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on in the days that we live in right now. And so we need to be busy about his business, right? But not busy about the world's business, not busy about my business. And as we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit, we can't be too busy that we don't neglect, the, that we would neglect our, our prayer life, our personal life with him. I just keep, keep back, I come back to that one spot where he said one by one. One by one, our God is such a personal God. Who knows? Who knows what he has for you? Maybe he has something so amazing. He's just waiting for us, for you to surrender completely to him.